For the week of November 6th, 2013, this is the Energy Gang Podcast from Green Tech Media. Hello and welcome. I'm Stephen Lacey, a senior editor at Green Tech Media, behind the microphone as usual in Washington, D.C. With me are my two co-hosts here in Washington, lover of all things energy policy related, Catherine Hamilton, the founder of 38 North Solutions. Hey there, Catherine. Hey, great to be here. Another beautiful fall day in Washington, D.C. Absolutely. Fall kicks in late here, but when it does, it's beautiful. And coming to us from an undisclosed black site in Norway is Jigger Shaw, energy futurist and author of the book Creating Climate Wealth. Jigger, what's got you in Norway this week? Well, you know, I'm trying to tap into the data feeds between Google and Yahoo's data centers. And uh, <laughs> I'm having a little bit of trouble, but we'll get it done. Are you working with the NSA? <laughs> Clean energy investor and NSA spy, Jigger Shah. <laughs> You're going to be back in the country for our live show next week, right? Yeah, I'm actually flying back tomorrow. I think the live show is actually going to be a ton of fun. So, um, And I also think it'll be, it'll be full with uh, John Wellinghoff being there. Yeah, it's going to be great. And just a reminder that that's going to be at the Marriott Metro Center in downtown D.C. on November 12th, next Tuesday. It's the MDVC Solar Focus Conference. We will have John Wellinghoff there, the outgoing chairman of FERC, and he's going to be um, pretty candid, I think. Tickets are 25 bucks and can be purchased at MDVCA slash Solar Focus 2013. All right, so on to this week's agenda. In our first segment, we're going to be talking about the production tax credit. Advocacy groups for and against the PTC are gearing up for an end-of-the-year push, and we'll look ahead at the possible outcome. We'll also ask if the PTC for wind is even still needed. Then it's on to solar finance. Solar City is now attempting to securitize its rooftop solar projects, marking a big moment for financial innovation in the sector. Is it the beginning of a much larger trend? And then we'll have an energy policy roundup in our last segment where we will discuss the implications of this week's local and state elections for energy. There are a lot of unknown elections, but they are pretty important for the sector. And of course, at the end of the show, we'll tell you something you may not know. All right, let's talk production tax credit. After a bitter fight over an extension of the PTC last year that became an election year issue, all sides have been relatively quiet since. But now that we're approaching the end of the year, tax issues are coming up again, and that means the battle over the PTC is beginning. Catherine Hamilton, what is going on with the tax credit this year? Um, what's on the table, and what are the chances of another extension? Yes, yeah, so it expires this year, at the end of this year. Now, they got a little bit of extra time because they changed place in service to start construction date, so they're able to start construction. And if they if they start at least uh, you know a small percentage of it, they can continue to take the credit. But the credit will expire at the end of this year. Um, and it doesn't look like, given what happened with the fiscal cliff and the shutdown and everything else, that they're going to get anything done before the end of this year. I just cannot see that happening at all. Um, I think this whole last year, Camp and Bacchus, who both are about to time out of their particular spots as the leaders on the tax writing committees, um, you know, they had done a listening tour. They had taken ideas from a lot of different people. They had been writing bills um, together and separately and were really, really wanted to do tax reform on a grand scale. And I'm sure they were just you know, weeping into their soda glasses uh, when everything came to a grinding halt and nothing was really able to get done. And um, I think what that means is that in 2014, 
they're going to have to do something. Now, they're, they're either going to need – I don't know that they're going to do some big, grand package. Um, they may need to do something slightly more scaled down. Um, or, you know, there's always the just like, let's just extend the dozens of provisions that expired in 2013. Well, what happened interestingly was this last year, a couple of quiet bills were introduced, one by Jan in the House, one by Jan Schakowsky, uh, the sort of the left side bill, which is the wind production tax credit in perpetuity and revoking some of the fossil credits. And then um, Mike Fitzpatrick, a Republican from Pennsylvania, introduced a phase out bill, which is basically six year phase out. Um, and so that's sort of the right wing so far. Well, now we have this letter that says, um, you know, just end it all together. Don't ever extend it. I think we're going to have to come up with something that gives the wind industry and the wind industry as disparate as it is because, you know, a lot of companies have different types of business models still need the production tax credit. Um, so I think they're going to have to talk, start talking about how do they look at this in a way that gives them some certainty but isn't, but removes this from being an in perpetuity conversation, even though the oil and gas guys have theirs forever and theirs have been baked in forever. I think they may need to start talking a little bit about how they're going to how they're going to try to scale it down over time. Yeah, it just seems to be the only viable option right now. I can't see that anyone would realistically support a production tax credit in perpetuity. I know the president came out in support of it, but it just sounds like the only viable option is to really start talking about a phase out. What do you think, Jigger? Yeah, I think the wind industry blew its chance. I think last year they had a phase-out on the table. They were given a choice. Yeah, but that was a messaging phase-out. That wasn't a real phase-out. No, I think it was a real phase-out. I think in committee they were given a choice. Which way do you want to go? And they decided on the one-year extension because they thought that they might be able to win it again this year. And I think when you think about how much money the oil and gas industry led by ExxonMobil and others are spending against the wind production tax credit, I think it's just going to be really, really hard for the administration to protect this uh, this one when, you know, tax reform and all sorts of other stuff is happening. Um, I think this is, you know, one of the one of the tax credits that's going to be on the chopping block. Yeah, I totally think it has a bullseye on it. And interestingly, I don't know if you saw this, but Exelon, uh, which has been wanting to get rid of the credit uh, because it hurts some of their under, other business lines, is actually taking advantage of the PTC and cashing in on it whenever they can. <laughs> Where was the wind industry this whole year? I mean, they've been very silent. Perhaps you know, Catherine, maybe they've been working behind the scenes in, in the halls of Congress, but they have waged no messaging battle whatsoever. Um, the opponents really haven't done a lot either, but they've been completely silent when they have had this opportunity to talk about phasing out the PTC in a time of fiscal austerity and really trying to be proactive about this. Why haven't they done anything? Yeah, the thing is, you have to remember the position that they're in. So are there any other industries that are told, hey, you guys have to come up with a way to phase your credits out? I mean, nobody else is being asked to do that. And so I think for them, it was really hard to say, well, why should we be the ones that say we should have the permit, you know, that we should get rid of our tax credit when nobody else's is on the table and we're the only ones with the bullseye? So I think they were in, a, in an odd position that way. So their messaging has been very broad. Now, they have said, without actually saying the words phase out, you know, we understand, we may not be able to be around forever and have it be permanent, but we need certainty for the industry. And I think that's what the key is, because if you just, again, go for this one-year extension, again, you have the supply chains drying up, you have factories shutting down, and that has not stopped. The, as many orders have been placed, there are a lot of supply chains that have gone elsewhere, and it really has hurt the industry quite a bit. 
Jigger, what do you think about I, this? Let's look at a post-PTC world. I know that you've said that the wind industry needs to start thinking about phasing this out or getting rid of the PTC altogether. You know, people do point to the fact that factories were starting to shut down in the lead up to the PTC. Um, we haven't seen any pro- – well, we barely saw any projects come online in the first half of this year due to that overlap with the PTC phasing out and companies being uncertain about whether they were going to finance projects. So what happens and why are you supportive of phasing out the PTC? Well, I think that it's important to step back for a second and understand why these tax credits are a good idea. I mean, in general, when when economies of scale have the ability to really reduce cost, then it's the responsibility of the government to help these technologies achieve scale. And when you look at the cost reduction that we've been able to achieve in the last 15 years on wind, it's been extraordinarily pr- impressive, not just because the raw costs of wind turbines have come down, but also the features that wind has been able to add have, has taken their capacity factors from 20% up to 30% and beyond in some cases. And yeah, so 80% cost the- drop since the 80s. Yeah, so wind has actually done extraordinarily well. So now the question is, are we expected to get even more cost drops and more innovation from the PTC? And I think you can argue that you're not. Um, and so the real question is, what happens to the wind industry? And my contention is that let the PTC go away because it's actually a cause of extraordinary consternation every two years going back to the 90s. And so this is not a new phenomenon. And where wind really um, is powerful is in the RPSs. Nobody signs up wind, or very few people actually, is probably more accurate to say, sign up uh, wind PPAs because they think it's a better technology than everything else out there. The vast majority of PPAs are signed because they're forced to sign them out of RPSs. And winning a state battle is only a million and a half dollars. Winning a federal battle is an unlimited sinkhole of capital with no guarantee of success. Yeah, but when you look at the combination of accelerated depreciation and the production tax credit, that can amount to roughly half of a project's capital costs. So when you take away the PTC, which is maybe 30% of that, you definitely impact the economics of project development. Can RPSs really fill in that gap? Yeah, I mean, look, if you look at the middle part of the country where the wind industry is just has ridiculously high wind uh, potential, you're talking about bids right now in the $20 per megawatt hour range, $23 per megawatt hour range. If that number doubled to $46 a megawatt hour, you would still be cheaper than new natural gas, new coal, and new nuclear. So it's not like these wind energy farms are going to be uncompetitive. On top of that, what I would suggest to you is that I know for a fact that there is a lot of low-cost money ready to come into the wind industry if – and this ties to our you know, sort of securitization conversation um, – ready to come in if the tax credit were to go away. Because when you think about Asian money in particular, which is coming into the U.S. with – um, force right now just because they want access to the U.S. dollar, they can't take the tax credits. And so they're sitting there unable to invest in wind power. Yeah, I actually think that that's the point of view, though, of, that the developers take, but not the manufacturers necessarily. So the manufacturers really, really need this PTC or else they'll go somewhere else and they'll they'll manufacture somewhere else and not have it in the U.S. So we, you know, there are companies that have relocated here 
um, that, you know, their supply chains started drying up when the PTC was in uncertainty. I actually agree that we do need, a, I think a phase out would be really smart policy, but it needs to be a phase out over time. I think if you just let it expire, it's going to kill, it's going to really kill a lot of the wind industry and we're going to lose the manufacturing good jobs. Um, I think you need a phase out that will provide certainty over a period of time. And, you know, the wind guys last year, their letter in December to Congress said, and that was sort of the proposal is if you give us two technology cycles, which they figured was about six years, then that'll get us to a place where we really have parity. And I think, you know, this sort of right wing proposal, which is to, um, which is to, to phase out the tax credit, but over six years is actually really smart because that will give them the time, the certainty that'll give them more certainty than they've ever had before. And yet it'll still get eventually get rid of that tax credit. But I think if you just chop them off now, it's going to be devastating. Oh, I agree with you. I just think that they had their chance. They had leverage last year. They lost that leverage. They don't have leverage this year. I mean, after the shutdown, I just don't think the president wants to back them up. But on top of that, going to manufacturing, and the solar industry obviously has the exact same arguments for them, the biggest problem that we have in the in the industry is we conflate the two together, and they're not linked. The United States, ever since Jimmy Carter, has been anti-industrial policy. And so if we actually want manufacturers in this country, we should demand that they're in this country, and we should have separate policy to support them exactly the same way Germany did. It had a separate set of policies to support solar manufacturing than it did the feed-in tariff. They didn't just get manufacturing because of local demand. So Eli Hinckley, a, a tax lawyer based here in D.C., wrote this great piece last year during the, uh, the, the PTC debate. And he outlined a couple really interesting ideas for what the wind industry can do in a post-PTC environment. Um, some of them were around wrapping new financing into refinancing for existing projects, um, using bonds by combining wind farms with some other kind of economic development project that maybe meets requirements for issuing a bond. Um, he pointed to the potential for real estate investment trusts and MLPs, Master Limited Partnerships. Um, and, and then possibly tying future credits, you know, a phase out of the credit to performance targets. And these are all really interesting ideas. I'm wondering if any, if either of you think any of these can fill in the gaps where, uh, where a phase out of the PTC cannot. Yeah. You know, I'll talk about the MLPs briefly, which is master limited partnerships and, you know, if you really wanted to do tax reform, you would get rid of that construct altogether. You wouldn't try to cobble together a bunch more industries that could take advantage of it. Um, and if you got rid of it altogether, that would be a revenue raiser. And then you could do something else with that, with those funds. Because the oil and gas guys have had that forever. I don't know that you really need it anymore. Um, there is a lot of buzz about this tech neutral deployment credit um, that some of the folks on the Senate side have been talking about. And I don't know exactly how you administer it, but it would supplant a lot of the credits that are already out there for renewables, but it would be technology neutral. And um, I'm not sure how they'll go about doing it because each industry kind of has its own, uh, you know, different issues in different parts of the investment cycle. So I'm not sure how they would do it, but it's it's one of those concepts that's also been floated out there. Um, I don't, you know, Eli had some great ideas. I don't know that any of those um, are gaining ground at this point. I don't know that they're really going to do anything major. Um, and I just hope that this thing doesn't just expire and then they just don't do anything. Well, that's the question. I mean, one of the things that the wind industry had a big problem with this year was that they had no leadership, right? I mean, Tom came in 
recently, and frankly, I, I think he's an extraordinary guy, and they made a really good choice in yeah. picking him. But when you think about, you know, they, they were sort of rudderless this year, and so I'm trying to figure out whether they actually have enough tentacles in, in, in you know, into where they need to go to actually negotiate a deal. I mean, I, like I would take if if you're if you're seeing that the win production tax credit's not going to get extended anyway, I would trade it for MLP read status, et cetera. I get where you're coming from, Catherine, but I mean the oil guys desperately want the wind guys to have the MLP because they think it'll actually broaden the base of the constituents for the MLP and then you know enshrine it in stone. Um, whereas right now the Tea Party guys are going after the MLP structure. I mean, I'm not sitting there in the meeting rooms at Awea, and I'm not there in the meetings that they're having with staffers on the Hill. But I have seen absolutely nothing over the last year or a couple of years in in terms of progressive policymaking that would get them beyond the PTC. What new options has the wind industry put out there that would get them beyond the PTC? They just continually have these year-long fights they wait to the end of the year in the hopes of some tax extenders package. And now that they've had this opportunity to reformulate the policy and think about new opportunities, they can't look beyond the PTC. Catherine, maybe you can fill me in here. I mean, I know you say they're in a hard place here, but I just don't see any innovation in policy whatsoever coming out of the organization, even though they know that this is a policy with a target on its back. Yeah, I mean, part of the issue is that there is a huge difference between a really good, smart policy and a political reality. And I think they have just been bumping up against political reality for way too long. And maybe that's made it so they can't see beyond that. But even just looking at the people who've supported the PTC in the past, a lot of these guys are in sort of those last districts that have people who are even marginally reasonable on the right wing. And they're going to they're gonna be run out of office in 2014 um, by either side. I'm very worried that we're even going to lose politically the people in the Republican Party who have been willing to support the PTC. So I think what's happened has been this nexus of, you know, it's been it's sort of stymied them, um, the political reality. And and that's made it very difficult for them to be creative. Um, so that's that's my take on it. All right. Well, we've got a bit more policy to talk about later in the show. So let's move on to something else to break up the conversation. Here is a topic to make your heart really pound, solar securitization. So we talked about some big acquisition moves from SolarCity a couple weeks ago. And this week, SolarCity made headlines again when it filed its intent with the Securities and Exchange Commission to package $54 million in projects and sell tranches of the pool off to investors. This is a first for the industry, and it is big news. You may have heard of mortgage-backed securities or collateralized debt obligations, the financial tools that packaged housing investments together um, and which almost brought down the global financial system. Uh, but securities are used all the time to package different forms of debt, and they are finally coming to solar now that the industry is scaling. Jigger, why is this so important for the solar industry? What do you make of this news? A year ago, uh, the Saren and Poor's and Moody's we're both saying that we're actually not ready for securitization. That the solar industry was so poorly um, executing its portfolios that they didn't think that they could securitize these assets. And so I think what you've seen over the last year is Solar City and others who are coming out with securitization have actually really listened to S and P and Moody's and put in place uh, servicers, 
uh, to do the billing for them, put in place backup strategies for operations and maintenance. They've put in place advanced metering and monitoring, which the credit rating agency said were required. They did all of that stuff, and then this $54 million is a trial balloon, and as you can imagine, it's a very tiny amount of money for Solar City. But it, 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 it represents multi-years worth of work to get us here, and I think once this happens and it gets priced, um, you're going to see an explosion in lower-cost money coming into the Tier 1 players. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of areas of risk that these folks are looking at. I mean, there are still somewhat limited performance data in the industry. We have maybe five years of good data. There's still somewhat of a lack of scale. Uh, there's the continuing changing of the economics of modules and, and installed systems. There are the questions about what happens if the homeowner defaults on their loan or one of these leasing companies goes bankrupt, goes belly up. Uh, these companies haven't been around for a long time. So if I'm a rating agency, how confident am I in all these risk factors, Jigger? You're way more confident today. So the reason that they almost refused actually to rate this paper a year ago is because they just didn't even think that they had answers to those questions that you posed. Today, they have answers, and they actually believe the answers are adequate. Now, as more data comes in, I think you're going to see even lower interest rates. But you have folks like Kilowatt Hour Analytics, um, which has already amassed, I think, 10,000 residential systems worth of data, and is providing that data now on a real-time basis to uh, potential investors in this product. And so I think the level of innovation happening on servicing the institutional investors is groundbreaking. I mean, one more piece of uh, news that came out this week was that NREL announced that they actually got a deal done with the residential solar installers such that in 2014, 80% of all of the solar leasing contracts that get issued next year will be under a unified contract that NREL helped broker, which I think, again, points to you know the extraordinary um, convening power and value that the Department of Energy and the government can provide if they're actually focused on, um, you know, uh, bringing the industry forward as a team. Oh, Jigger, I have a question. This isn't my sweet spot at all, but I was talking to a solar investor last night in an event, and he said the solar city thing is sort of uh, their own private deal. I want a rate. I want a rate that I can get at any time. And so my question to you is, do you think that this will at least open that up? Yeah, that's exactly what happened. So think about when you are getting a mortgage, right? You have some no-name person that you went to high school with that actually brokers the mortgage for you. Literally two weeks after you do that deal, you get a letter in the mail saying that Wells Fargo has bought your loan and so you no longer are writing your checks to XYZ you signed with, but actually now with Wells Fargo. Wells Fargo then, if it wants to, securitizes that loan through Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac on the on the exchange. So in that transaction, everyone knows roughly what the interest rates are going to be and how much profit they're going to make in every step. That's what we're getting to. Today, every single person in that chain is a bottleneck. So like Nat Kramer, for instance, got the award at the White House for being a clean energy champion. He is actually buying these these loans and then negotiating at the same time with potential buyers of those loans to see whether they're, that he can get a better deal. So he doesn't actually know exactly what the rate of return is going to be as soon as, when he buys it. He has a rough estimate and then is trying to profit maximize um, every single transaction. And that's hugely inefficient. And it also means that 80% of the residential solar installers are shut out of the market because they don't you know, have the 
pleasure or the honor of having a license to work on a clean power finance you know, platform. So securitization is a big deal because, of course, in the solar industry, there is a shortage of tax equity, uh, a limited number of players, and securitization can potentially open up in new banks, insurers, pension funds, mutual funds, all these other players that haven't been able to be involved in the space. Uh, Jigger, do you think that this solves some of the tax equity problem, or is it still just too small? It's on its way. The goal of securitization is for us to have a clear-eyed view, as Catherine was was talking about, on exactly what the cost of capital is going to be, where the market actually thinks the risk profile of solar is, so that everyone up the chain knows that answer. And everyone from the guy who's got three employees to the guy who has 300 employees has equal access to the money. If we can accomplish that, which I think we can by 2016, then when the ITC goes from 30 to 10, we are actually going to be celebrating that fact because it means that the amount of money that we can bring in will become much larger because we now can go after not only the tax equity money, but now we can go after the cash-on-cash cash money, which is infinite in size. I mean, you can bring in Abu Dhabi money. You can bring in Saudi money. You can bring in Chinese money. You can even bring in Norwegian money. I mean, I'm, I'm here, and the Norwegian government, through their export finance agency, is providing 5% interest money at 12 to 14, 15-year terms for technologies that are made in Norway. And there are a lot of ingots and solar panels and stuff made in Norway. And so you can imagine that if you had access to that kind of money on a cash-on-cash basis, that you would more than pay for the reduction of the tax credit from 30 to 10 in 2016. Well, the securitization piece is such an important topic. Everyone in the solar industry is really focused on this. And I want to a broader show on financial innovation because there are all these really important models, community-funded solar, uh, crowd-funded solar, all these other models that we talked about, REITs and MLPs, uh, these pooled assets. So let's pick this back up. Uh, On to our third topic. Yesterday was an election day in the U.S., and it was not a high-profile one, but it did feature some very important local races where energy played an indirect or a very direct role. Let's walk through some of those key races uh, as well as some of the unknown ones. So the big ticket race over here in Virginia was Democrat Terry McAuliffe versus Tea Partier Ken Cuccinelli. Cuccinelli is a pretty heavy supporter of coal, got a lot of backing from the coal industry, and is a very fierce denier of climate change. Uh, McAuliffe is a tentative supporter of EPA regulations on coal and is seen as a moderate on energy issues and supportive of renewable energy. Um, Virginia is a state where coal has historically played an important role in elections, not so much anymore, um, but it is a historically coal state. So yesterday's election of Democrat Terry McAuliffe particularly since he supported EPA regulations on coal, is indicative of a substantial shift in the politics. Catherine, as a Virginia resident, uh, what do you think this election actually means? This is so interesting. I'm not just a Virginia resident. I was born and raised in Virginia. I was born in Richmond and raised in Lynchburg. And, um, you know, it's funny because the the race was not one over energy issues. It was one um, because women do not want birth control taken away from them. And that is what, you know, Cuccinelli represented someone who was really going to take women um, and families back, 
a number of decades. And I think those were the policy issues at play. That said, the environmental groups um, really had a lot of impact in putting boots on the ground, in neutralizing the coal debate um, and making McAuliffe. McAuliffe is really, I think he's going to do well in Richmond because he's a businessman. He's kind of one of those guys who will cut deals and figure out what works and, and what doesn't work. And Cuccinelli is an ideologue. And I think in the end, um, that's what allowed McAuliffe to, to move ahead. Now, I don't, I didn't see huge shifts in the way the state votes. I mean, the, the state, McAuliffe was carried by Northern Virginia, certainly, um, which is heavily blue, and also some of those um, pockets where universities are, like uh, Lexington and Williamsburg and Charlottesville. There are also a lot of rural areas that are um, highly African-American populated. Those all went from McAuliffe. Richmond went from McAuliffe. So the population centers, and then there were some other places, and then the eastern shore, too, some of the... um, uh, Hampton Roads area as well went for McAuliffe. But it it's it the voting, the blues and reds didn't break out that differently than what they normally do. But I think what happened, especially since McAuliffe was coming in as not a Virginian, um, that really the boots on the ground, the environmental folks who got out there and knocked on doors and canvassed whether or not the voting issue was about the environment and about climate change, I think it still had a huge impact on the turnout. Yeah, well, this is the most important story right here. So maybe energy wasn't high up on the priority list of voters, but the environmental groups came in and spent a ton of money. So Tom Steyer's group, Tom Steyer's that pro-climate action billionaire who we talked about on the show a few episodes ago, his group put a couple million dollars into the race. The League of Conservation Voters put another $2 million into the race. I think the Sierra Club put about a half million dollars into it. And combined, these Enviro groups spent more money for McAuliffe than any other group in support of him except for the National Governors Association. So that was a very big story. And I think it surprised a lot of people how much money these environmental groups are spending on races. So I guess what I'm trying to understand, I'd love for both of you guys to help me understand this, is it um, what do we get for it? Right. When you look at Jay Inslee in Washington State, this guy actually wears environmentalism on his sleeve. I mean, if you think about his record in Congress, it was one of the best records of any environmental person that we have. And he's actually went, went way moderate since he's been governor. He didn't even comment on the coal trains issue in Washington State. I'm just trying to figure out is that's what we expect after spending that much money that, you know, these Democratic governors can just turn our back, their back on our issues and not actually give us what we you know, paid for? Well, let's think of this in the context of coming EPA regulations for existing power plants. So EPA is going to develop this standard that will be flexible for states, and states will have to figure out the rules depending on their generation portfolios. And just like we saw with healthcare, the states are going to be absolutely vital in being allies in these EPA regulations. So if we don't have the leaders on board that are going to help be supportive and craft these rules, even if they turn out to be more moderate than environmental groups expected, uh, those regulations aren't going to go anywhere. So I see it as a chess game. Um, there are some immediate wins, and, that there are, and then there are their long-term plays. And if you don't have the, the right folks in place on, say, the gubernatorial level, 
then the chess pieces aren't going to move down the road. So, look, we saw some really interesting – look at Kentucky when you look at the, the health care exchanges. Uh, Kentucky, a conservative state with a Democratic governor, they've been moving ahead with their exchanges, and they've signed a lot of people up for uh, on the health care exchanges, and they've been an ally for the Obama administration, and they see that as a success story. So if you can get those pieces in place, I think it's going to be vital down the road. No, I'm just saying it's sort of like George Bush's, you know, like line, which was the bigotry of low expectations. It's extraordinary to me that that's what we call a win, right? When you think about what Sam Brownback's doing in Kansas and the Tea Party agenda or the folks in North Carolina are doing on their agenda, you know, our wins look like losses and their wins basically are real wins. Wait, are you telling me that defeating a fierce climate denier – Someone who has spent the latter part of his career trying to pull down climate scientists and making vitriolic comments about the scientific community and individuals, defeating someone like that isn't a win? I think it's – I, I no, think no, no, you're no, underestimating look, I, it. No, no. Look, we have good RPS policy in every state from Maine all the way to Georgia. The only glaring place where we don't have anything is Virginia. Mark Warner, Tim Kaine, all of them have been useless on our issues. Now, from my perspective, if Terry McAuliffe delivers, then our $5 million was well spent. If he doesn't deliver and all he does was prevent Cuccinelli from becoming governor, that's not a win for me. Yeah, I think Terry McAuliffe is a pragmatist, and I think he will do some really positive things. He's a business guy. There are also a lot of folks in Virginia who really do care about climate, and you look at Roanoke and Charlottesville. These are communities that are doing a lot of really interesting projects. Um, even South Boston, Virginia, has an incubator. I mean, they're all over the place are really cool things going on in this state, and I think, I think Terry McAuliffe has the ability to bring those together in a way that makes sense for business. So you're saying that Virginia is more conservative than any state from Maine to, to Georgia, including South Carolina and North Carolina, both of whom, of whom have better renewable energy policy than Virginia, and that in general, I should not have very high expectations for what we get out of Terry McAuliffe for the $5 million that we spent getting him elected with boots on the ground? Yeah, look, I think that it's important to put the pressure on people who are supposed allies. And if that's your definition of a win, then so be it. I mean, mine is a little bit different. People on the right are moving the conversation so far to the right, particularly on climate issues. It's very helpful to get someone who's moderate on these issues in place. So I'm not as concerned if Virginia doesn't have a renewable energy standard in place. Now we have the building blocks there so that you can start to put the pressure on. If Ken Cuccinelli is in place, you have nothing to work with. There's very little that you can do to create the momentum that you need in order to put that policy in place. So you have to start from somewhere. I had nothing to work with with Tim Kaine and Mark Warner. Let's be honest about what we actually accomplished under Tim Kaine and Mark Warner. Nothing. Nothing at all. And so I'm just tired of us having such low expectations that it's okay just to defeat a climate denier and it's not okay to demand and actually – you know, expect that these folks are going to thank us for the $5 million that we spent in their state race. I just think it's unconscionable that we can actually spend that kind of money and not have very high expectations. This is where the policy versus politics rubs come, <laughs> rub comes in. You come down to Virginia and spend some time, Jigger, in Richmond, and uh, you'll, see what, you'll see what it's like. No, I have. But look, I mean, let's be clear, right? I was on the MDVC board. 
this conference that we're doing a live gap fest in. I've worked tirelessly with you know Virginia politics with Mitch King and Mike Keeley and a lot of the other fantastic people in Virginia doing things. And we did get some progress under the era stimulus money and some of the things. But I've also been on the ground passing the laws in North Carolina and in Georgia and some of these other places. We can win here. There are a lot of people who support our issues from Tea Party folks, etc. But we shoot ourselves in the foot because we don't have you know, these very high expectations for our politicians. And so we say to, you know, folks like Governor McAuliffe or Governor-elect McAuliffe that, oh, don't, you know, you don't have to push on our issues right now. This is a slow game. When, in fact, it's been a very fast game in North Carolina and in Georgia. North Carolina is going to be, I think, the fifth largest solar market in the United States this year. It's extraordinary what we've accomplished there in the face of Tea Party opposition. I think that that's a bit of a straw man. I mean, we haven't seen what any of these groups have done. McAuliffe just got elected. So so we'll agree to disagree on this one. And let's move on to some of the other races because they are very important. Um, in Boulder, residents approved a cost target for acquiring the local grid from Xcel Energy. We talked about municipalization recently. The ballot measure got 64% of the vote. And grassroots groups supported by the Sierra Club were outspent almost two to one, but they pulled through anyway. Uh, interestingly, a lot of money spent in that race as well. Uh, more than $860,000 was spent on both sides, with the Sierra Club putting more than $30,000 in that. Uh, in Washington State, there is this little-known race that has huge implications for coal exports. Progressive groups spent... Uh, about $300,000 on that race where four people perceived as opposed to a massive $600 million coal export terminal. Uh, they won seats on the, the Whatcom County Council. And the Seattle Post-Intelligencer called that election bad news for big coal. So that coal export fight has been gearing up over the last couple of years. Um, environmental groups have about two years ago saw this as a big issue and decided to to pour some money into fights around that and um in that county council seat election i mean this is an election that no one outside of washington state or the county would ever pay attention to nearly a million bucks was poured into that race because it's going to be so important for the coal export terminal fight so interesting to see how much money is coming into these uh, issues that are very local in nature, but that Enviro groups see as huge to their cause. That was really cool, actually. I agree. I mean, you know, interestingly, Jay Inslee stayed out of that uh, race, which I, you know, fault him for. But uh, but it's interesting. And then in Boulder, Fort Collins, and Lafayette, they passed anti-fracking measures, which is interesting. Um, so in a mining state like Boulder, you actually got, or some mining state like Colorado, you got Fort Collins and Lafayette to go anti-fracking. Yeah. yeah, and I I find it interesting that it's an off off year for elections. So it's it's not a presidential year. It's not even a you know a House of Representatives year, um, which means you're going to get generally lower turnout. But it also means you're able to focus on issues that you weren't able to focus on before that get kind of lost in the you know in the bigger picture stuff. So I kind of like that you get to focus on things like this. Even though they were small races, they were very localized. It was a huge change. So environmental groups, which historically push Democratic. De Democrats generally have historically been skeptical about big money coming into politics. And now what we see with these races is they pour millions of dollars into these local fights. They're playing the game. They're doing exactly what Americans for Prosperity and what other conservative uh, operative groups are doing. And they're now even outspending opponents. I mean, they outspent the coal industry in Virginia and matched the coal industry in Washington state. 
So I wonder if you have opinions on whether this will change how progressives talk about money in politics. Now, look, I mean, if, if you can't beat him, join him, right? But this is why I have yeah. the point of view that I do. If I'm going to convince Tom Steyer or all these other people to put in massive amounts of money in these races, I'm going to have very high expectations. I'm not going to just, you know, put this money in and elect people and then say, well, you know, as long as the counterfactual was avoided, then I think we're okay. I mean, you know, we're we're going to have to start demanding more from our elected officials, not just because it's good for the environment, but just because it's the only growth strategy we have in this country. There's no chance of us getting to 4% growth rates and full employment in the blue-collar workforce without rebuilding our infrastructure the right way, the resource-efficient way. Yeah, and Jigger, I actually think that's correct, that you know the oil and gas industry is just – and the traditional fossil industry just dumps millions and billions of dollars into races, and then they do hold their elected officials accountable. They basically own them and tell them what to do. So now we have to turn the tide a little bit and say, all right, we uh, we supported you. What are you going to do for me? Well, we'll see what these groups can do in the coming year. And I think this is a taste to come in upcoming national elections. So expect a lot more money to flow. Let us wrap up and tell our listeners something they don't know. Catherine, what do you have for us this week? Oh, I did absolutely the coolest thing ever yesterday. Um, I went uh, and Jigger alluded to uh, Nat Kramer winning an award at this White House Champions of Change. And these are vets that um, have realized that climate change is a national security issue and they've come home and, in fact, some of them are still deployed and are doing incredible clean energy projects. Um, And I just want to read the the 12 names. And so Nat Kramer is one of them. Dave Belot, Adam Cote, who I was there for because he did a thermal energy storage um, company that he started in Maine. And he was actually calling in from Afghanistan from the field. Um, Robin Eckstein, Phil Green, Avi Jacobson, Kevin Johnson, Joseph Knott, Joe Kopser, Nat Kramer. Andrea Marr, Liz Perez, and Drew Sloan. And these folks were vets that served, that saw how much our dependence on fossil fuel um, is is detrimental. And they all had aha moments where they decided they would they would change things. And they are doing the most magnificent things around the country in clean energy. And the, the um, ceremony, interestingly, the president did not come. And I actually thought that was a really great thing because then it would have been about the president coming. Uh, but Nancy Sutley was there. John Powers, who's a federal environmental executive and started Operation Free uh, that this all came from. Uh, Dennis McDonough, the chief of staff, was there. Ernie Moniz, the secretary of energy, who basically said that renewables are storming the barricades of energy. Um, Denny McGinn was there, Sharon Burke and Sherry Goodman. And I just thought it was just one of the best things I've ever been to. And I've been in D.C. for a long time. I should, by all rights, be jaded. But I thought it was incredibly special. Nice. What a good way to tie together a complicated subject of national security and renewables development. I like that a lot. That's that's really damn inspiring, actually. I mean, I just, you know, it's I've also been able to work with a lot of vets and it is amazing how many of them actually are very, very pro clean energy just because of their service and what they've seen. All right, Jigger, what about you? Tell us something we don't know. Well, I'm going to give you something a little drier. Um, I um, you know, I'm in Norway this week and I met with a number of investors and government officials and what's extraordinary to me is that you know when you look at solar city stock price going from you know they barely went public at like seven or eight dollars a share and now you know it's almost reaching 60 
Um, there is another clean tech bubble, and there's a lot of folks in Norway looking to cash in on that. So there's a lot of folks buying up old um, REC assets and um, you know looking to to create uh, companies over the next 12 months with them and then taking them public. And so I think you're going to see a lot more money in clean tech venture, a lot more money in clean tech growth equity, and you know these valuations with stock prices of Sun Edison and others going up three, four hundred percent. Um, are really leading to a lot more money coming back into the space. Hmm. Are those like private equity firms? Yeah, the private equity firms are the ones coming in because they sort of see that that the uh, that that Wall Street and you know other folks are really providing generous uh, valuations to these companies, and so there's a real arbitrage opportunity, um, you know, otherwise known as a bubble. All right. Well, mine comes from a story that I saw today from my former employer, Renewable Energy World. So BrightSource's Ivanpah Concentrating Solar Power Project has gotten a lot of play in the press during its construction due to its first-of-a-kind nature and some of the environmental issues associated with siting. Um, But now it's getting some new play in a music video. So the popular rock band The Fray filmed a video for their new single, Love Don't Die, and they filmed it in the middle of the power plant. The video features all kinds of crazy images of the band walking through the project, and they're reflected in the mirrors. It's very neat. Uh, it's not a pro-renewable energy video. If you were, didn't know what you were looking at, you probably wouldn't know it's a power plant, but it's a cool little story for the project. And it's one of those examples of renewable energy seeping into the public consciousness and into mainstream popular culture. All right. Well, that is all for the show this week. For links to some of the stories we chatted about, visit greentechmedia.com and check out the podcast page. While you're there, subscribe to the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, or our RSS feed. If you've got any ideas for topics to address on the show, send them my way. My email is lacey at greentechmedia.com. That's L-A-C-E-Y at greentechmedia.com. We pass those around and we want to hear from you. Also, connect with us on Twitter. We all have our Twitter handles, and we respond to listeners as they throw out ideas. And don't forget that our live show in downtown D.C. featuring John Wellinghoff is next week. That's on Tuesday. You can buy $25 tickets to that at mdvca.org slash solarfocus2013, and we hope to see all of you there. Uh, Catherine Hamilton, have a good week, and we will see you live next Tuesday. Yeah, thanks. I can't wait to see everybody in in real life. Absolutely. And Jigger Shaw, safe travels from Norway. We will see you soon as well. Thanks. I hope, Catherine, you get a lot of sleep in the next few weeks. It sounds like there's going to be a ton of late nights with this uh, wind PTC later this year. (laughs) Yeah. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you all next week.